0: Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. Five years ago this week, we moved into our current house. It's hard to believe it's been five years. Did you you realize that, Laura, that it's been five years? Well, I guess we did talk about that. Five years ago, this week, moved into our, into our new house this, pa- this past week. And when we got there, the front yard was a complete disaster. There was a tree, an oak tree, that was growing right out front of our front door, and it was splitting and rotten in the split. And one of those splits was hanging over our house, <laughs> So one of the first orders of business is we have to take out this tree. Now, the tree was surrounded by Asiatic jasmine. Has anybody ever dealt with Asiatic jasmine? It is the biggest pain to deal with here. Like, you plant it, and you better be willing to just deal with it the rest of your life. And so there was Asiatic jasmine that was surrounding the tree. At one time, I'm sure it was beautiful. It was hideous. Because this Asiatic jasmine had spread everywhere. We were finding it up, crawling under the sidewalk and up, you know, up the house kind of thing. It was just a complete mess. Sprawled everywhere. The fingers of that stuff was going everywhere. And this tree surrounded by Asiatic jasmine, the jasmine was trying to hold back the uh, the No. Railroad ties were placed in a square around the Asiatic jasmine to hold it and contain it and that railroad ties had become rotten and crumbling and falling apart it was awful the tree had done so much damage to the yard that the grass almost didn't exist what was there was nothing but weeds and and dirt and what little grass that did exist was was not healthy it was a yard that had been unkept for so long. And, and to sell the house, they did try. They did a, a, as little work as possible, and they planted a few new plants out front, just so that when people walked up, they would say, oh, new plants. And, uh, and there was pine straw that they had put out, just haphazardly. It was, the yard was, was, uh, was a mess. And there were trees that were planted too close to the house that hadn't been trimmed in years. They, it, was, it was a disaster. There were beds that used to be beds that now didn't exist. There was no real boundary to them. You get the picture, right? It was chaos in our front yard. And Laura and I, when we pulled up to, to look at the home for the first time, we looked at the front and we said, This is this is just chaos waiting to be tamed. And Laura almost immediately had a vision of what she wanted our front lawn and our front beds and our our front grass to look like she had this idea from the start this is what we're going to do i looked at it and i'm like oh my this is a lot of money and this is a lot of work the only thing that did work in the front yard was a sprinkler system that had been put in like 10 years prior by Jeremy Hunt. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Jay Hunt Enterprises. Jeremy Hunt, the only thing that was good about the whole lawn was this, this system that he had put in years ago that still worked and still works today. It was awesome. So I don't know the last time he's even put in a, a sprinkler system. This has been years and years ago. It was the only thing about the front yard that we looked at and said we could work with. Everything else, was a gut job, it was a disaster, it was chaos, it was nasty. But when you walked in the house, there was a lot that we loved. They had already redone so much in the house. We looked at it and we thought, man, we can just from curb appeal alone change this house and its value. Today I want to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the moment of creation. If you have your Bibles... Turn to Genesis 1, and there's only two verses that we're going to read, and I've already read them or said them, quoted them once. These two verses begin the beginning. There has been probably, um, uh, there's, there's no telling how many volumes. There have been literally thousands, if not tens, I'm sure tens of thousands of volumes written just on these two verses alone. We don't have time to delve into the intricacies of these two verses, and you're reading it and you're looking at it and go, uh, it's pretty straightforward, but it's really not. And so I want to take just a minute to do some background so that as we dive into it, you can understand it a little bit better. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The reason why so much has been written about this is because the language isn't clear in the Hebrew. We don't know if certain words uh, are supposed to have a a little bit different angle of a meaning. So we're just going to tell you my take on this without diving into the the real depths of of what this could mean. There's about four different things that in the beginning could mean, by the way. Or better yet, uh, more specifically, or more precisely, I should say, there's about four different things that scholars believe, categories of, of, of the time frame that sets up with verse one. Is verse one the very beginning? And then verse two, uh. uh there's a gap between one and two, that's called the gap theory, there's a gap between one and two, and that, uh, that verse two really describes something that happened after verse one, and then this gap that we don't know what happened in the gap, that's one of the, that's one of the things. Some people think that, that uh, verse one and verse three go together, and that two is kind of parenthetical, I don't want to dive into all the reasons why I believe what I'm about to tell you because it would take the rest of the day and you would be asleep in five minutes. Here's what I believe in the beginning is. In the beginning is exactly what it is. It's the beginning statement for not only Genesis but all of Scripture. It's the heading, in the beginning. We're going to talk about the beginning here. It's not anything other than that. Like at the beginning of Matthew, when he goes into the the genealogy, he says, these are the generations, and then he lists the generations. This is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, now I'm going to tell you what that looks like. So verse 1, in the beginning, the thing you need to know about this is that God created. Right? That's the theological statement. God created. Now, there's even more volumes written over. Did God create from nothing, ex nihilo? Or did God create from chaos, verse 2? Again, we don't have time to dive into what I believe fully on that or why I believe what I believe, but I'm going to give you the the kind of the sketch on that when we get there, okay? But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What you need to know is that this is a statement about how God created. This is what God did to create. God's the one that moves, God's the one that creates, God's the one that is over all of this, then I believe that verse 2 moves from, if if verse 1 is a a general statement for all of Genesis and beyond, then I believe that verse 2 is the heading for what follows in chapters 1 and 2. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Big picture, God created was the one that existed before all else, and he created everything. Verse 2 then is, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then the rest of chapter 1 and 2 dives into exactly what verse 2 means, in a way. That's kind of where I've settled on what I think the breakdown of Genesis 1 is. So verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ex nilo. There was nothing there God created. Verse 2, it says, the earth was without form and void. And we're going to get into what those two words mean, form and void, in a second. But you get this idea that it was chaotic and that there was just this big blob of nothingness that was something and God hovered over it and then he created. He created out of chaos. Verse 1, in the beginning God created out of nothing. Verse 2, God began creation out of chaos. I believe that the Hebrew poetry is purposefully vague here because God does both. God does both. He creates out of nothing and He takes chaos and makes something beautiful out of it. So, what does this without form and void mean? It means chaos and nothingness. These words actually rhyme and they're right next to each other, which almost, well, really never happens in Hebrew poetry. And I believe that it happens together as an emphasis. I said emphasis wrong, so it stand out to you, right? This is an emphasis on the wrong syllable. I'll let that sink in for a second. It's we're gonna rhyme these two words together so it sticks out, and you know right away that this is important. That there is nothingness, that there is chaos. The word for form and void means that there's that there's the negative of form and void. It's it's absolute chaos. It's swirling chaos. But there was something there. What we don't know, and I can tell you where I am after years of studying this, is we don't know if there was a gap between one and two. That's not what this is trying to tell us. This is trying to tell us that God created and that as part of his creation, there was this moment where there was nothingness and it was chaos and God began to bring it together. These verses don't try to tell us all the specifics. You know why? Because you wouldn't understand. Even when scientists try to make sense of this and they say, oh, well, there was a primordial mix. What the heck's a primordial mix? They don't even know. It's a guess. And that's not what this passage is trying to teach us. This is... First and foremost, a passage about theology. It's not about the intricacies of how God created. So the earth was there in verse 2, and it was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So what you need to understand is that this word for deep is the word they use for water, the deep waters, the depths, the abyss, the deluge of depth. So deluge we think of as rainfall, but it also can mean just a vast amount of water. So it's the vast deep that doesn't end. It's the abyss. Darkness, water, chaos. In the Jewish pool of imagery, which remember this is poetry, chapter 1 is poetry. In poetry, the Jewish pool of imagery of chaos is water and deep waters and darkness. Because if you are a first century Jewish person or if you are a, a Jewish person in Moses' day, water is scary and you can't control it. Darkness is... You can't see, and there is no electricity. Those are the things that are dangerous and scary. And so so the picture here is utter, fearful chaos. That's what this poetry is trying to paint a picture of it's nothingness. And because it's dark and it's the abyss, it's scary. But, in our translation, it's an and here. And, in the middle of this chaos, in this fear, the darkness, and the abyss, the Spirit of God was hovering. The Holy Spirit shows up, hovering over. We're going to form Land, tree, plants, and animals, and stars in the sky. And And he does it out of chaos and out of nothing. This weekend, Laura and I had the opportunity to sneak away for a day just for for less than 24 hours, just for a day, over to one of our favorite places on the globe. On 30A, just not far from here, William is an old faithful 30A guy from way back when they were bungalows and not bazillion dollar whatever they are now. About 12, maybe 15 years ago, for Laura's birthday... Over to 38. And we stayed in her uncle's, her then uncle's, he has since passed condo over there for free. And we were poor, young, married couple that was just trying to make it on a pastor's salary. And we went over and I saved up my money for a long time and I bought her an art class. And she did an art class with a famous artist of Alabama that many of you probably don't know because she's not real famous here. Her name is Nan Cunningham. And Nan Cunningham would put on a class once a year on 38 at this small little studio. And so Laura went, and she was one of like four people in this class, and it was her and three other people in Nan Cunningham. And they spent, was it, three days? I think, so it was a day of teaching and then two days of painting, and it was, at the end of that, they kind of did a showing, but in the middle of that, at some point, Laura, I I peeked in to see Laura's painting. It ended up great, but my first view of it was like, oh my. Like, this is not this is bad. This is bad. Well, it just looked like, I mean, can I say doo-doo brown? It looked like doo-doo brown just smeared all over the canvas. Literally. With a little tinge of yellow and something else. And it was, I'm like, so what you might not know, that, that's a big thing now. I mean, like, not, not, do brown smeared on canvas, but the big thing is is just kind of the, uh, is just these abstracts. But but this was abstract, all right. But but what you need to know is Nan Cunningham teaches and paints still lifes, fruit, flowers, pictures, tea sets. You know those kind of things not abstractness here's what i found out later after that first glimpse that every painting that nan cunningham does she starts with a brown and it's all actually called burnt umber i later found out a burnt umber background and she takes that burnt umber and she swirls it and she mixes it so that, that there's no pattern. It's just kind of chaos on the canvas. And then she takes the same burnt umber and the next step, the step that I hadn't seen yet, the step that came later for Laura, was you take that same burnt umber and you begin to draw outlines of the still life. And then, not only do you draw the outlines, you begin to fill in what that still life is, slowly and surely painting the strokes, and the canvas goes from pure chaos to something of great beauty. And her her canvases sell for a lot of money now. And if you walked in and you saw a Nan Cunningham painting, you'd be like, wow, that's impressive. In fact, I saw one just yesterday of white hydrangeas of a picture uh, uh, in a picture of glass, it's beautiful, breathtaking. But that painting, starting with smear, burnt umber, swirled all over, and she slowly brought from chaos something of beauty. And for some reason, Siri just tried to uh, give me a definition of smear canvas on my on my watch. How weird is that? Wow. But she goes from chaos to beauty. And that's the process of what, of what God does. He takes nothingness, the blank canvas of history and the blank canvas of your life. And then when the chaos hums and swirls, He begins to draw the outlines. The Holy Spirit begins to fill in the detail. And what goes from just nastiness goes into something of beauty. Guys, that is a perfect portrait of what God is painting in your life. It's what the Holy Spirit does. He creates out of nothing and he creates out of chaos and he brings something of beauty and he tames it just like a gardener tames it. The wildness of an empty plot of land, just like a gardener brings beauty out of nothingness, the Spirit comes and brings beauty in our life. That's what the Holy Spirit creates. So if there's anything good and beautiful in this world, the Spirit created it. Even if the hands that knitted it together or painted it weren't His. That's a theology, a deep theology of the Spirit. That if you look out the window and you see something beautiful, it's not that that thing in and of itself emits beauty, it's that there is a force behind it that created beauty from nothing. And that force is the Spirit. So, if you feel like there's a void and an emptiness in your life, the Spirit has a plan. If there is chaos swirling in your life, the Spirit has a plan. If your spiritual life feels like uh, uh, an overgrown, underappreciated garden of thorns and, and weeds and entangled vines, if it just looks like complete chaos, He wants to come and tend your garden, and make it into something beautiful. That's what the Spirit does. If you were to drive by our house today, you would see that we don't have a tree right in the middle of our front yard anymore. How? I don't know. I don't know what wizardry she used, but we don't even have Asiatic jasmine out there. If you were to drive by our house today, what you would see instead is a well-manicured lawn, one that's been watered, one that's been fertilized and lined, one that's full of green and life, and I think it's beautiful. You would see agapanthus growing. You like that, don't you? And if you don't know what that is, it's lily of the It's It grows tall in this bright blue kind of ball at the top. It's gorgeous. We have we have Agapanthus growing and we have we have because of the because of our our soil we have we have these hydrangeas that are growing these really beautiful big mounds of the brightest blue with the tinge of purple but really blue blue almost neon blue. You would see, what's the white stuff, Laura? Huh? Lantana, that's it. You would see lantana growing with white blooms. Over on the side, in between our driveway, you would see a blueberry bush brimming over with blueberries that I can't pick because they're really our neighbor's. I mean, if you leave them there, the birds are going to eat them, right? I'm just saying. You would see um, gardenias at the front door, and they now have lost their white, and and, and now they're turning that yellow that's kind of yellow, but they kind of smell, they have that really pungent gardenia smell right at that yellow stage. Have you noticed that? And so it's, it's not what I would call the most beautiful thing because the yellow is stained and, it's, and the, the, it's turned from white to yellow and it's about to die off. But even in that, it's beautiful. It's, it's a whole new front yard because Laura had a vision of what it could become and she had an idea of what she wanted to do. And there's, there's I don't even know how many different kinds of ferns and there's different grasses. And I'm like, this is amazing. Just tell me where to dig and plant. And now, it looks totally different from unkempt to something that has order and beauty. Some of you might be like my house five years ago, just a little rough around the edges. But I know a gardener. And so do you. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.